Okay. It's a poem by uh, Morris Manning. It's a poem number one from his series called Old Time Kentucky Salt Kettle Dream. In the milk drench under the trees beside the stream where dragon root rises on its stalk and its green hood or halo rises further, in my time I have been a passionate man. Even now I see the dry bed suddenly gorged with rain and then I see myself beside the stream half broken by my breaking passion for seeing all things move at once in one direction toward the river and further toward the symbol the river becomes in thought. But the thought of symbol in thought becomes its own river. And now I see how the symbol turned to living force outlasts its first blunt life to become the truth. I want to claim uh, Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8 where he said that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we shall be witnesses from here to the ends of the earth. That is true now. It was true then. It's true now. And uh, we need to live and do live in that. First, I want to thank you all for your prayers and generosity generosity towards Sarah and I and our family in Texas during this time of seeing a very loved brother-in-law go to be with the Lord. It was a bittersweet time. I wrote to my sister-in-law the day after Ronsky passed because I was thinking about what she may have been feeling and thinking in, those, in that day. I wrote, it makes me think of what we were doing in the days after my dad died. It was surreal. Some relief because dad was done with cancer, mixed with grief at a loss, mixed with a melancholy because he was in heaven and I wasn't with him, and then punctuated with moments of certainty in the plans he and mom had arranged when this moment happened. That was the most surreal. Thanks for helping us as a church to get out to Ronsky's memorial and back. Words can't match such generosity. But isn't that an, the echo, an echo of the gospel? Something happening beyond imagining and being handed to you like a simple passing of a note or the receiving of a gift. Resurrection is an unimaginable act, a real and true unimaginable act. Now let's get into this passage of Revelation 9. Very simple passage. (laughs) We are in chapter 9, verses 12 through 21 this morning in our walk through uh, Revelation as we look at when the man comes around. And he is going to come around. That is something every one of us who comes up here agrees on. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, is coming back. The Apostles' Creed says he will come back to judge the quick, or living, and the dead. We don't know when, We have weird images here of how he's coming back, but we do know that he's coming back. Before I start, I want to remind you all of some of the ideas that, or one particular idea that influences how I approach looking at Revelation. Repetition breeds remembering. I'm approaching Revelation in a similar manner that I approach a piece of art, painting, a sculpture, um, an etching. I'm approaching Revelation the way I would approach a poem as I am encouraging you all to approach it similarly. Elaine Scarry, in her book on beauty and being just, wrote this about beauty or something beautiful. She said, Beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. Sometimes it gives rise to exact replication, and other times to resemblances, 
and still other times to things whose connection to the original site or thing of inspiration is unrecognizable. What am I saying? Well, like Elaine Scarry's thoughts on beauty, in the book of Revelation, we have things that we see and grasp, which are exact replications. There are things that resemble what we know, and then there are things outside our ability to understand. Some things we say, I know what that is. Some things we say, I think I know what that is. And then there are things in which we say, I have no idea what that is. These are all understandable and acceptable responses to the book of Revelation and our teaching through it. This book, this whole book, the Bible, is full of such things. Even the ones our minds have an easier time grasping. For example, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Most people who read those passages resonate with the beauty of Jesus' teaching. And we should. But when any of you have fully understood everything in the Sermon on the Mount, please let me or Buzzy or any of the elders know because we'll want to get you up here in this pulpit as soon as possible. The concept and ideas, concepts and ideas of the Sermon on the Mount might be more graspable, but its teachings are of a greater depth that take a lifetime to understand. The visuals and concepts of the book of Revelation might be less graspable, but that doesn't mean we can't learn anything of depth from it that brings understandings, uh, brings understanding to our walks with Jesus. Remember that the Bible is deep enough for elephants to swim and shallow enough for to- toddlers to wade. This is why I read poetry from up here from time to time in order to play in that zone between what is graspable and understandable. There are things we can be certain of from the Bible, but there are also things in it that we have to learn to live with with only a sufficient set of knowledge. It has to be sufficient. There's something we can know for certain, and then some things we have to learn to live with sufficiency. Is it sufficient for me, even if I'm uncertain as to its meaning? There is a lot of that in this book, and I think that's intentional. This morning, in this passage, I'm going to focus on what I am more certain of than not. I will not be making huge correlations as to what the images correspond to in our time or regarding the eschaton. What I do, when I do, I'll try to make sure I say it's speculation. I will be taking this, uh, I will be talking about this morning what I think is more graspable. Just an aside here, uh, regarding how you can tackle these things in the book of Revelation, let me suggest some resources if you wish to go deeper. First, uh, something a little lighter in depth, but a great overview. If you go to the Bible Project's YouTube channel and watch the series called Spiritual Beings, it is a seven-part series of videos three to seven minutes long. It's a great overview to help you get your thoughts into a place of understanding of the spiritual world. Second, if you want to go a little deeper, look up a four-part series uh, seminar series featuring Michael Heiser called Supernatural. It's also on YouTube. Each is about an hour or an hour and a half long. It was recorded a few years ago in a church in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a really good series in which there are things I learned that I hadn't even known, even, even as someone who grew up in the church. The things I learned did not undermine the truth of the gospel, but they helped widen and deepen my appreciation of the Bible and what it says about our world. And finally, if you want to go even deeper still, related particularly to the book of Revelation, look up Heiser's podcast called the Naked Bible Podcast. Look for a series on the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. 
He does not go. Uh, he does not talk about specific a specific view of the end times, but looks at the places where John uses Old Testament imagery when describing what he sees. Uh, Sarah and I started through. It's a good series. Did you know that John never directly quotes the Old Testament in the Book of Revelation? Did you ever notice that? He doesn't. Paul does it in his letters. He'll quote it, and the other, some of the other apostles they say, and, the, and the, as the scriptures say, and then they'll quote it. John doesn't do that. But he uses Old Testament imagery over and over again. We've referenced some of that up here. It's really fascinating. I had no idea. It's, it's kind of like a different way of doing it. So, to the passage. What I want to look at from Revelation chapter 9 this morning are three things. One, the trumpets. Uh, two, the unrepentant. And then Jesus is Lord. So trumpets, unrepentant, and Jesus. Let's start with the trumpets. Here in chapter 9, verses 12 through 21, we have the blowing of trumpet number 6 of 7. It may be too simple a thing on my part, but it struck me as I was uh, thinking about this passage that it might be good to look into what a trumpet meant in this time when John had his vision. We kind of just assume, ah, it's a trumpet, but what did it mean? As Brett mentioned at, the last, at his last Revelation sermon, there are three sets of seven in this part of the book of Revelation. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls to come. These three items are probably not used frivolously by God in communicating meaning. So what could the trumpets mean? In our current culture, we associate trumpets, uh, trumpets used mainly with entertainment. Think jazz quartet, or high school or college marching band, or symphonies or backup horn sections in bands like Earth, Wind, and Fire in Chicago, which are really, really good backup Brass section, horn sections. Anyway, outside entertainment, trumpets are not used much elsewhere, or seldom used. They are used for other things, but seldom, as they are in entertainment. In more recent, previous centuries, trumpets were used more extensively for celebration, similar to our use in entertainment, heralding or announcing or to signal military action, Trumpets many times in modern centuries were used in things related to nobility or religious activities. But what about in the time of the Apostle John in the first century when Revelation was written? How were trumpets used then? How would he have understood the trumpet? It is rather fascinating. In ancient times, trumpets were present in many different cultures throughout Europe, Asia, and all the way to the islands of the Pacific. You could say worldwide. There, there is evidence of trumpets everywhere. From the Egyptians to the Chinese, Germanic tribes even had some. Uh, they were usually made of wood, reeds, grass, bark, clay, animal hides, bones, seashells, or metal. Uh, in fact, there was a trumpet found in King Tut, Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, a silver and gold one that actually had um, a mute that was just as long. You can look it up. So they found a straight, uh, old, old school, thousands of year old silver trumpet. Most times, they were used as signaling devices within a culture. In Israelite and Jewish history, there were two types of trumpets. The shofar, shofar made of a ram's horn, and the katsosra. Katsosra, I'm probably killing that. Uh, but it's katsosra, made out of hammered silver. The shofar was the more common trumpet, whereas the katsosra was unique and used only by the priests. Numbers 10, 1 through 10, sets out what the silver trumpets were used for. Let me read it for you because it is very interesting. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation 
and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm, and the trumpets that you may be, uh, you shall sound the Lord with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Though the trumpets here in Revelation could be the shofar, I am more persuaded that they are like the silver trumpets used in the temple system. This is probably what the Apostle John had in mind when he saw and wrote this, though we are talking about trumpets of the spiritual realm. Either way, I bet these trumpets were pretty impressive looking. From Numbers 10, we see the trumpets were used mainly in two ways, to signal actions within the Israelite community, whether summoning leaders or to a meeting or camp movements, and was also used in like actions of war or religious issues uh, and activities, when Israel would go to battle or do sacrifices. Let me give you two examples of these in the Old Testament. As a signal to Israel, uh, you can find this in Leviticus 23, 23 and 24. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. That was for the Feast of Trumpets, actually. So that was a signal of, uh, of an action or an activity going on in the religious activity. But what about uh, an example of a use for war? In Jeremiah 4.19 it says, My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. There are more, but that's a good start if you want to look up what trumpets, when trumpets were used. It's, it's rather interesting. It seems rather clear from their use here in Revelation that these trumpets were to be both a signal, but also for war. The first four trumpets signal an action like a plague upon the earth, similar to the Egyptian plagues uh, with uh, the Israelites and Moses. The fifth and sixth trumpets seem to also signal an action, but one more akin to activating armies. In the earlier verses of chapter 9, the locusts emerge almost like an army. And in these verses, horsemen are released who also seem to bring an army with them, whether demonic or earthly. Just a brief word and aside here about the resulting activity of this of trumpet six being sounded here. What are these unbounded angels from the Euphrates about? What are they about? And the large number of mounted troops, what are they about? Well, there are two sets of four angels recorded here in chapter seven and nine. And commentators and others more learned uh, of more learned individuals than I have associated these four angels here in chapter nine with the four in chapter seven. Honestly, I'm not sure. But of late, I've wondered if these two sets of four are the same. Are they good or bad? 
good or bad angels? Well, we can say at least what they release is bad, but that doesn't necessarily mean the angels themselves are evil. It could be that they are merely given authority by God to release these forms of judgment upon the earth, which are terrible. God himself has done things that might seem as bad, but that doesn't mean he is evil. God is good, but he has brought severe judgment on people. As Mr. Beaver said in the Chronicles of Narnia, the line in which in the wardrobe, Aslan, or God, is not safe, but he is good. As for this massive army, is it demonic or physical? The description of this massive army does appear to be demonic. However, you have to ask, how would that appear on this earth? In fact, how would any of this appear on earth? Remember, these descriptions of John's are done while he was in the spirit and are seen, it seems, mostly in heavenly places, punctuated with some activities hanging happening here on earth, and sometimes a combination. It appears that John sees this stuff while in the supernatural and natural realms. So that may be a commentary on whether these verses in chapter 9 are about the army, about this army are only demonic or physical and earthly. We know from other New Testament books that demonic activity does express itself or happen here on earth. Why would it be any different here? If it does happen visually before our eyes the way John says it does here in chapter 9, all the better for us because we can know what it means. If we actually saw these things, I think we'd die from fright or go unconscious. But if John is seeing activity in the supernatural realm that is also expressed in the earthly in other ways, then we need to be more discerning, praying that God gives us eyes to see when necessary. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Just because John sees it this way in Revelation doesn't mean that we will see it that way here on earth when it happens. It could. It could be that when John's describing here everything, we will see it exactly like that. But this is spiritual activity. We don't see spiritual activity right now, do we? We see the results of spiritual activity and people being influenced or possessed or even scourges, disease. That is connected to the spiritual realm. So will we see it as John sees it? Maybe. Maybe not, but we will see some effect. Back to the trumpet. What can we learn from our walks with God in regards to this trumpet thing? I think two things. As a parallel to the trumpet's use as a signal to act, we need to be ready to obey God when he communicates to us. The trumpet was used as a signal saying, do this now. Well, we need to be ready to act in obedience to God when he calls us. Whether we, by his word or in his spirit, we need to be ready. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. How do we obey God? A good place to start is what we do know clearly from his word, at the heart of which is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and second to that is loving your neighbor as yourself. That's a good place to start on how to obey God. As a parallel to the Hatzitzurah trumpet, in other words, the trumpet used to signal for war, uh, what do we learn from that? This does not mean we take up earthly arms and start wailing away at our enemies, not even close. We take our note from the Apostle Paul in this when he wrote in Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Do not be surprised or dismayed if such activity becomes more apparent, this unseen, demonic, 
spiritual realm activity becomes more apparent in our years to come. Maybe see in Ephesians what Paul was talking about regarding this armor. You might want to look that up. I leave that to you. What about the unrepentant here? Point two. So we looked at the trumpets, now about the unrepentant. Brett mentioned this in his last Revelation sermon, but I will take it a little further. Here we have in verses 20 and 21 this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works with did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So as a result of these dark afflictions in these verses in chapter 9, a third of humanity is, is destroyed, but two-thirds is not. Now you would think after witnessing such woes, plagues, and destruction, you might see someone saying, hmm, maybe I need to change or should change. But you don't. The two-thirds left of humanity double down and continue to, to on to the wide path of destruction. Reading this reminded me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1. I will read an extensive passage here as it carries weight in its entirety. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteous, unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason God gave, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing seamless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I ask, as Brett also asked, is God being mean? Let me ask a question in response. Two, actually. What would be the most loving thing to do here in this manner? The two-thirds. What would be the most... We talked about in Revelation 9. 
what Paul talks about here in Romans 1. What would be the most loving thing to do? The next question. What would be the most just thing to do? The most loving thing seems to be to ignore the unrepentant and save them. The most just thing would be the opposite. Judge them for good. What do you do? In a sermon Sarah and I listened to on one of our trips to and back from Texas was one from Tim Keller who talked about this very issue. He said you can't have one without the other. You can't have love without justice and vice versa. If you don't love something, then there is no need to be just. There is no motivation to be just. But if you love something, then you want justice for it, especially if that which you love is violated. Justice without love and love without justice is not possible. Which brings me to my last point, Jesus is Lord. This whole time in these chapters with the seals, which are in chapters 5 through 8, and now the trumpets, which are in chapters 8 through 11, we have these phrases inserted. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then later in verse 6 through 8 in chapter 5 it says, And between the throne and four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, and then in verses 3, 5, 7, 9, and 12 of, of chapter 6, as well as in chapter 8, verse 1, it has some form of these phrases. The lamb opened one of the seven seals. Then it says he opened the first seal. Then he opened the second seal. So we see this lamb who got this scroll because he was worthy to get it from the one on the throne. It seems authority is there. He is king. Then in the uh, the rest of chapter 8, the seven trumpets start to be revealed and are blown. Why is this important? Brothers and sisters, in the midst of all this turmoil and severity, the lamb, as though slain, is in authority. He took the scroll with the seals from the one on the throne because he was worthy. He was the only one able to do so. Though it, though it seems terrible and dark, the lamb as though slain reigns. And who is this? Well, this is Jesus, of course. The lamb who, as though slain is Jesus. John 1, 29 and 30 says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus is the lamb as though slain. (coughs) Slain because he took away the sin of the world. How? By taking the weight of sin on himself on the cross. But he's not only the lamb, because he's the lamb of God and takes away the sin of the world, but he's the lamb as though slain because he rose from the dead, the first one to do so for good. Brothers and sisters, it gets better. Going back to the justice and love relationship that I mentioned earlier, Jesus was the only one able to exercise authority, to exercise both love and justice perfectly. Being God, Jesus can't ignore one part of who he is over another part. 
He is fully all to everyone. He can't be more or less just or more or less loving. He is perfectly just and loving. He took what was justly ours upon himself. He took the sentence of death, of justice, death, though that itself was an injustice, in order to fully allow the love of God to be ours. And that is still true even in the midst of these four angels being unbound and the subsequent results. That is still true even while all seals and trumpets and soon seven bowls are released and their consequences. Isn't it interesting that even in that moment after a third of the earth of humanity is destroyed, two-thirds are still left. God still is waiting for them to repent. Because as they refuse to repent, that assumes God gave them an opportunity to repent. But they refused. So even then, God is being gracious. Repent! (laughs) Yet they refuse. So even so, the lamb as though slain is still in authority. Even as these seals, trumpets, and bowls consequences are released. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Sound familiar? He took the scroll with the seven seals. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In this book of Revelation in chapter 5, we read what was said of him about taking the scroll of seals by the four creatures and the 24 elders when they sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has the authority even while these severe acts of judgment fall. We should be encouraged by that. So how do we apply this stuff in our walks with God? Let me revisit first my first point of the trumpets and ask, how are you responding to the signals of God? Is it in obedience? Are you in relationships here in our church with your fellow pilgrims sharing the victories and struggles to assist you in following God? Growing in God, obeying Him is a process that takes a lifetime. It's not easy, we know that. Everyone in this room who follows Christ knows that day. It's not easy. Join us on this pilgrimage and don't ignore this encouragement. Second, how are you viewing the warfare we are in? We are in a war. Do you realize that? The other trumpet signal was about war. Go to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 and read about the armor Paul suggests we put on for this battle. Read Jesus' prayers in the Gospels on how to pray, as that is a very important tool in our form of warfare. And like the first part of this trumpet signal, get into close relationships with your fellow pilgrims. We're not meant to, to walk this alone. How do we, what do we learn or how do we apply stuff in our walks with God about the unrepentance of people? This motivates me to think about how to share the message of Jesus with my neighbors. The passage here says there are unrepentant people, but I have no idea who those people are. Do you? I don't know who they are. So until I know otherwise, I will treat all persons as potential repentance. Do you know how to explain the gospel if someone asked? Have you thought about how it applies to various parts of your life? Because we redeemed humans are are a little different from those not redeemed. We have similar obstacles and hurts and victories and questions. 
Only we have Jesus in the midst of them. They do not. Wouldn't it be great to help someone see Jesus who doesn't see him? Finally, take heart, fellow pilgrims. Christ is Lord. We live in a dark and ever-darkening culture and world to which the very words of Jesus counter clearly in the Gospel of John. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have, will have the light of life. This is a... I'll close with this. This is a poem from Malcolm Geith called I Am the Light of the World based on that verse that I just read. I see your world in light that shines behind me, lit by a sun whose rays I cannot see. The smallest gleam of light that still, still seems to find me or find the child who's hiding deep inside me. I see your light reflected in the water or kindled suddenly in someone's eyes. It shimmers through translucent leaves in summer or spills from silver veins in leaden skies. It gathers in the candles at our vespers. It concentrates in tiny drops of dew. At times it sings for joy. At times it whispers. But at all times it calls me back to you. I follow you upstream through this dark night. My Savior, source and spring, my life and light. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the Lamb as those slain. Thank you for being worthy to take the seals and to be in authority even in the face of these severe and harsh things that we read about in Revelation 9. But then, I just can't imagine how harsh that can be even in the face of what you harshly faced, which is being accused of something falsely. Being accused of being God himself, you, and which you were, and being put to death because you were God yourself. And yet you live. Uh, you uh, exited that tomb that morning and showed yourself to the women of your followers and then to the rest of your followers, Lord. And we're so grateful for that. We ask that you would come close to us in these times as our culture and our world continues to seem to double down on its darkness. But we know from your word that you are the light. Help us to live as that light, as you are the light. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.